Hello again and welcome. My name is William Strejcik and this is the Orient Express, a historical podcast focusing on the Middle Eastern region, its politics, historical conflicts and overall development that is much needed in order to fully understand the present-day dynamics of the region and individual countries. In today's second part of the last episode, we shall talk about a certain Kurdish warlord that ruled during the First World War and the first few years of the post-war period in an area between the Turco-Persian border. The dominant personality of the Persian-Turkish frontier was Ismail Akka, better known as Simko, chieftain of the large Shikak tribe. Cleverly exploiting the possibilities offered by the turbulent history of the region in the first quarter of the 20th century, balancing between the Turks, Russians and Persians, and later the British in Iran, with all of whom he was in irregular contact, Simko not only managed to hold his own, but to increase the extent of his power and influence in the region. In the aftermath of the war, he set himself up as an independent local ruler, cooperating with a number of leading Kurdish nationalists and challenging the central government. Even after his rebellion was crushed by the modernized Persian army in August 1922 and he had fled from Persian soil, he remained an influential actor in central Kurdistan and both Turkey and Britain attempted to use him in their interest in the conflict over the status of the Mosul province. So sit back and relax, as you are about to board yet another history episode on the Orient Express podcast. Simko rose to paramount leadership of the Shikak, the second largest Kurdish confederacy in Iran. Only the Kalor, living west of Kerman Shah, exceed them in numbers. The Shikak inhabited the mountainous district of Somai and Bradost, west of Salmas and Urumiya. In about 1920, they numbered some 2,000 households, non-tribal subjects not included. Perhaps it was the disappearance of most other experienced chieftains that made Simko's rapid rise possible. However, he was a clever and opportunist politician who knew with whom to ally himself and when. As a young man, he had assisted his brother Jafar in his raids, and he was to continue raiding throughout his career, thus attracting many roughs into his retinue. In the Constitutional Revolution, Simko turned against the Constitutionalists and, without being invited, took 300 horsemen to join the forces of Iqbal al-Saltanech, the governor of Maku, against the chieftain of Khoi. As a reward, Simko was made sub-governor of Kutur district. In spite of his continuing raids, the central government confirmed the appointment. Neither the Turks nor the Russians occupied the Shikak lands before the First World War. Simko's contacts with both were mainly indirect. Prior to 1913, he appears to have cooperated with pro-Ottoman anti-Russian Azerbaijanis, but in 1913 he delivered one of these, who had sought refuge with him, to the Russians in an attempt to gain their goodwill. He was apparently successful, for in the same year a Russian observer noticed that two chieftains who had previously been clients of Simko's main rival swore fidelity to him. By this time, Simko was in regular contact with Kurdish nationalists and appears to have adopted some of their discourse, although it is hard to say how much it meant to him. Simko had married a sister of Sheikh Said Taha, grandson and successor of the famous Sheikh Ubaidullah. This was a convenient marriage, for Said was the most influential man across the border, besides being a leading nationalist. Simko and Said Taha were to cooperate much in the following decade. During the war, Simko stood aloof from the real fighting, trying to keep all doors open while expanding his control of the frontier districts. 
The Russians once arrested him and sent him to prison in Tiflis, but, expecting to achieve more with the carrot than the stick, they let him return to Azerbaijan on condition that he lived in the town of Khoi and remained loyal. When the troops of the Russian general Baratov were called back from central Kurdistan after the revolution, Simko managed to capture many of their arms, including field guns. From other parts of Kurdistan, arms started following towards Simko, who had by then already earned a wide reputation as a nationalist leader. These arms were either left behind by departing Russians or had belonged to the Kurdish militias that had fought on the Turkish side. Simko was not the only one to arm himself, however. The Nestorian Assyrians were quite well armed too, and they were reinforced by equally well-armed Armenians from Anatolia. The departing Russians, unable to protect them any longer, left many arms behind and encouraged them to organize in fighting units. According to Arfa, a French military mission had also brought arms to the Assyrians to defend themselves against the Turks. During riots in Urumiyeh in February 1918, the Christians got the upper hand and took control of the entire town. The Iranian government was incapable of restoring order. The governor of Tabriz then approached Simko. At his instigation, Simko invited Mar Shimun, the religious and secular leader of the Nestorians, for talks on a proposed alliance and had him treacherously killed in March 1918. Simko's men took no part, however, in the subsequent fighting between the invading Turkish armies and the Armenians and Nestorians, whom the British then attempted to mold into a force capable of stopping the Turkish advance. Only when most of the Nestorians, lacking strong leadership after the death of their leader, fled in panic from Urumiyeh, did his men join Turkish soldiers in their pursuit, killing many. Turkish soldiers and irregular bands of Kurds entered the town and plundered what was left. The armistice brought an end to the Turkish presence in Azerbaijan, and no strong government was left. The Iranian government appointed new governors at Tabriz and Urumiyeh, but these did not succeed in establishing control of western Azerbaijan. The only authority with a strong power base was Simko, whose private retinue had been reinforced with several hundred Ottoman soldiers, many of them Kurds, either simply deserters or people with nationalist motivations. Others, mercenaries, were attracted by the high pay and the fact that Simko gave them wives. With their field guns, some of them taken from the Russians, and machine guns, they were to prove more than a match for the ill-trained government troops of Azerbaijan. The government had for some time no way of subjecting Simko, who continued more boldly than ever to raid the plains. The governor of Urumiyeh, Sardar Fateh, visited Simko in his stronghold at Chakrik and attempted to win him over by peaceful means, but Simko apparently saw this as further proof of weakness and even expanded the areas where he took the tribute that was necessary to maintain his army. Some time later, the governor of Tabriz, Mokaram al-Molk, had recourse to modern technology and sent Simko a parcel bomb that had been made to look like a box of sweets. Its explosion killed a younger brother of Simko and several of his retainers, but failed to hurt the person for whom it was intended. Meanwhile, Simko was busily preparing for the establishment of independence. In February 1919, there was a meeting of the most important chieftains of Iranian Kurdistan, at which the proposal for an open insurrection against the Iranian government was discussed. It was decided to postpone the uprising until it had become clear what the attitude of the powers was going to be. 
Syed Taha, who had joined Simco and closely cooperated with him, visited Baghdad in May 1919 in order to obtain British support for an independent Kurdish state. Simko himself addressed the civil commissioner, A.T. Wilson, by letter with similar requests. Neither received a definite commitment. According to Armenian sources, Simko and Syed Taha were at the same time in touch with the Turkish nationalists in Van, who wished to employ them for resisting the proposed repatriation of Armenians to eastern Anatolia, and therefore promised help. In the following years, the two Kurdish chieftains were to remain in contact with both the British and the Turkish nationalists. Without waiting for the other chieftains to declare themselves in open rebellion, Simko took the town of Deylaman, looted Khoi, laid siege to Urumia, and massacred part of the Azeri population of the Lakistan district that refused to recognize his authority and pay taxes. During the autumn of 1919, Simko's Kurds kept these districts north of the lake under occupation. Tabriz had, however, a new military commander called Entesar, who efficiently mobilized and coordinated whatever troops he can find – gendarmerie, Cossacks, irregular Azeri cavalry, and so on. Led by Filipov, a Russian Cossack officer who had just arrived from Tehran, these troops managed to repel Simko's Kurds and to inflict heavy losses upon them. Simko was forced to take refuge in his mountain stronghold at Chakrik and many of his partisans deserted him, including several of the former Ottoman soldiers. For reasons which are unclear, however, instead of following up their initial success and forcing Simko to surrender unconditionally, Filipov and Entesar entered into negotiations with him, as a result of which Simko promised to return the loot taken from Lakistan, to send off his Turkish soldiers and to surrender all his arms to the state. None of these promises was fully executed, and the whole affair ultimately strengthened Simko's standing among the Kurds. He could apparently act against the state with impunity, mainly to acquire firearms and to finance his future exploits. Other victories over government troops during that year resulted in further increases in territory. In March 1921, his forces were still described as 1,000 horse and 500 foot with a Turkish flag. In a summer campaign, they were already estimated at 4,000, in the autumn of 1921 at 7,000, while in the last great campaign in the summer of 1922, 10,000 men are said to have participated. Each of these estimates is rather rough and except for the last, includes only a part of what Simco could mobilize. The increase is nevertheless clear. Simco's authority was being recognized by a growing number of tribes. Early in 1920, there had been several meetings of a council of Kurdish chiefs presided over by Simco, which were attended not only by chieftains of some of the biggest tribes of Azerbaijan, but also by chieftains of the Artushi Confederacy and other tribes of the Hakkari. It was said that in 1921, Simko appointed a certain Ahad Khan as the paramount chief of the Herki, and that this was generally accepted by this powerful tribe. By the middle of 1921, the area under Simko's authority included all Iranian territory west of Lake Urumia, and from there south as far as Banek and Sardash, as well as the northwestern district of Iraq, where the British and the Kemalists were still competing for control. Besides the entire Shikak Confederacy and the Herkit tribe, other minor tribes around Banek also had joined Simko. In October 1921, Simko's troops entered the town of Mahabad, which had until that date been held by government troops. 
200 of the Gendarmerie garrison were killed, other 150 wounded. It may be illustrative of the motivation and attitude of many of Simcoe's men that they sacked the town upon capturing it, in spite of the fact that the inhabitants of Muhabat, unlike those of Urumiech and Deilaman, were mainly Kurds. Mahabat naturally became the capital. Simcoe did not take residence there himself, but appointed a local chieftain as governor. The Azeri towns of Mainaduab, Maragech and Binab sent letters of submission to Mahabat. Further military successes against government troops that year added to Simcoe's standing among the courts and swelled the number of his followers. By July 1922, his territory reached its greatest extension. Moreover, Simcoe was in permanent communication with tribes further south. He had influence in Marivan and Avroman, and even tribes as far as Luristan were to rise in support of his revolt. Many Kurdish chieftains in Turkey and Iraq had also established friendly relations with him. There were no concrete plans for a united action, but it could never hurt to have relations with a successful strongman such as Simcoe. Rumors started to circulate that the Iranian government was going to grant the Kurds autonomy because it could not subdue them. These rumors were to prove unfounded, however. Since the coup d'etat of February 1921, Reza Khan had devoted his energies to the building of a modern, disciplined, coherent national army. His efforts were soon to bear fruit. During 1921, and even in early 1922, Simcoe had been able to inflict repeated defeats on the motley troops sent against him, capturing many of their arms. In August 1922, however, a well-coordinated campaign by the reorganized army brought him to heel. His followers dispersed, leaving him nothing but a small band of loyal men. He had to escape into Turkey, and from there to Iraq. Edmonds, who interviewed him on his arrival in Iraq, observed that he was especially bitter against the Turks and the British. The former had always promised him assistance, but they too had now turned their armies against him, and the latter had passively allowed him to be crushed in spite of his usefulness to them. As a refugee in Iraq, Simcoe did not remain idle, but immediately started attempting to strengthen old ties and establish new ones with Kurdish chieftains there, in preparation for his return to Iran. He approached his old ally, Syed Taha, who was now used by the British to get the Turks out of Rwandus, and also Sheikh Mahmoud al-Sulaymaniyeh, the most influential nationalist leader of southern Kurdistan, who showed little interest in Simcoe's problems. He even tried to appease the Assyrians' refugees, who had been brought to Iraq by the British, and who still thought of returning to Urumia and Salmas. He was shown much respect wherever he went, but no one was ready to help him. In 1923, he went to Turkey to solicit Turkish support, but equally in vain. In 1924, Reza Khan pardoned him and returned to Iran. In 1926, he made a last abortative attempt to regain the virtual independence he had once held and besieged the town of Deilaman, assisted by sections of the previously allied tribes. Again, he had to flee to Iraq. In 1929, the Iranian government invited him back again, offering him a governorship of a province. A few days later, after his arrival, he was killed in an ambush set up by the same government. Even though after his defeat, Simcoe lost his actual power and the capacity to mobilize large numbers of men, he continued to enjoy wide respect among the tribes. Immediately upon his return to Iran, many chieftains of the Shikak Confederacy and the Herki, Surchi, and other tribes came to pay him their respects, accompanied by large retinues. 
Simcoe not only sought support among the tribes, he also attempted to ally himself with foreign powers. Repeatedly, he tried to elicit British support, usually through chieftains who had better relations with the British than he had himself, such as Syed Taha. In this, he had little, if any, success. At the same time, he was in communication with the Soviet authorities in the Caucasus and with the Kemalist Advan. Some of his letters to the former were apparently intercepted. British and Iranian authorities were convinced that the Kemalists had put troops at his disposal, as already mentioned. None of these foreign powers came to his support when he most needed it. In the early phases of his career, however, his association with state authorities, the Iranians who made him a governor of Kutur, the Russians and Ottomans who recognized him during the occupation, had strengthened his position among the Kurds. Such relations with neighboring states have always been present in the politics of Kurdistan, and they had continued to influence Kurdish nationalism in its later phases as well. They may well be considered part and parcel of Kurdish tribal politics. The large confederacy of tribes that was Simcoe's movement continued to exist as long as the tribes were kept mobilized. One of the factors that did mobilize them was nationalism. The rapidity with which Simcoe's support dwindled in times of adversity, however, suggests that for the majority of his followers, nationalism was at best an additional motive. As usual among tribes, mobilization should have some more concrete and immediate object and there should be reasonable chances of attaining it, be it a military victory or simply plunder. The frequent raiding associated with Simcoe's rebellion, which many contemporary and later nationalists held against him, was not simply accidental to it. It probably was a necessary condition for keeping the tribes mobilized and thus together. When mobilization ended, in this case because most tribesmen judged the chances of further success very small and therefore gave up, the unity immediately broke down, leading to an end of the specific warlord and his career. With that being said, we've arrived to the very end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. If you liked this episode, I will be more than glad if you leave a rating or if you share it amongst your friends or at social media. This particular episode and all the information come from a book called Iran and the First World War by Turaj Atabaki. Also, if you found this episode interesting, you can visit my Instagram or Facebook account called the Orient Express Podcast, where I'm constantly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes. Don't forget to hit the like and follow button and share this episode amongst your friends. See you next week with another episode of the Orient Express podcast.